From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Libby Dankman. Welcome to Soundside. And it's Thanksgiving week. In the spirit of thankfulness, we're going to revisit some of our favorite segments from the last year and the hardworking producers who make Soundside, whom I'm very thankful for, will be making the picks. Today I'm joined by Soundside producer Hans Anderson. He's here to share some of his favorite stories that he's worked on in 2023. Hey, Hans. Hey, Libby. It feels weird to say welcome to the show, but I want to say it. Welcome to the show. Okay, what do you have for us? Uh, It's good to be here. Uh, The first story is about (laughs) a couple who bought a house on Woodby Island, but that house also happened to be infested with bats. And, you know, of course, they didn't know this when they bought the house. And so they're still trying to raise money to rehome these bats. And for two people who had just invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into what was later labeled an eminent hazard by the Island County Health Department, Tom and Mackenzie Reekin were surprisingly upbeat and trying to make the most of the situation. It was just really fun to meet them and and to hear their story. This was a fun one to do. And let's take a listen to the story, which originally aired in August of this year. For many in western Washington, the concept of a dream home is mostly theoretical. With rising interest rates and an uber-competitive market, purchasing any home is a dream. But by their own accounts, Tom Reekin and Mackenzie Powell managed to find a good deal. Last winter, the couple had a new baby. Their son was born in November. They wanted more space for him to crawl around, and Mackenzie's mom alerted the couple to a spacious four-bedroom home nestled amongst the trees— With the front yard butting up against Deception Pass State Park, the couple was struck by the Whidbey Island location. Here's Mackenzie. We loved the area. We've been vacationing there our whole lives. It's beautiful. And the house was pretty nice, too. The Zillow description really paints a picture. This picturesque Victorian-style home is stunning. It's like in the style of a Victorian, but it's actually only 30 years old. So, you know, you're not going to have the problems you would have with an actual Victorian, like lead pipes, lead paint. Splendidly situated at the peak of Cornette Bay Heights, adjacent to Deception State Park with views of Cornette Bay. There's full wraparound porch on the main floor. Solid oak flooring throughout main and upper level, including grand baluster staircase. And there's actually also a basement as well. Vacant lot next door, available too. All that and the house was near Mackenzie and Tom's $800,000 budget. There were gables on the roof, clawfoot tubs, chandeliers, and a beautiful tree-filled lot. And sure, there were some unusual things about it, but Tom says they did their due diligence. We did an inspection. You know, I brought a voltimeter and checked all the outlets, and it seemed apart from the master to be okay and something and it did come up in the uh, inspection like hey we should consult with an electrician we had uh, an electrician friend go and check it out but there were like we're we're parents of a four-month-old baby at this point we're not sleeping through the night we're exhausted like it's like a gauntlet it's crazier than you know being hung over or drunk also on that inspection report was a note about rodents Some droppings could be an issue to look into. But Tom and Mackenzie weren't phased. They had lived in homes with mice or rats before. They figured they could set traps and deal with it themselves. Oh, there was one more odd thing. Yeah, we move in. We get the keys. Guess the date. April 1st. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) When do you see the first inkling that maybe this house is a little different? Tom, I think you were the first one to find a dead bat. You found one in the powder room bathroom pretty pretty soon after we moved in. Yep. 
I did. And we just thought that it had flown in. Somebody left a window or a door open during sale. And that's unfortunate. We and I remember just... I finally was able to remove the access panel and get into this, the what we call the water heater room in the attic. And it, there's this really weird white paneling. And the weird thing was there was like these little perforations, you know, like as part of the paneling and there were these fly larvae coming out of them. And so we were like, this is very interesting and was not, and there were, this didn't come off on the inspection report. And then uh, it was towards the end of May when we woke up one morning and there was a bat flying in circles over our bed. How did you learn the scope and size of the infestation after that? I mean, you're clued to the fact that this one-off bat, it actually has friends. There's a lot more. But how did you actually discover how big of an infestation this was? Yeah, my sister came up to support me while Tom was away on business. And so she'd just be one other extra set of hands for us with the baby, which is great. So she's on the top floor and her first night there, she's like, Mackenzie, they're scratching in the roof. Like you've got, you've got some pests. And I think to myself, oh, those are the mice or rats that we heard about during our inspection. Let's go get some rat traps. Let's go. So I took my sister down to the Home Depot and we got some rat traps. And um, so we just set them. We checked after like a day and there wasn't anything, which I thought was very interesting because usually like that's pretty effective is just putting up something nice and tasty, like a cookie for a rat, right? So I was like, maybe I've got to go up farther, but I'll wait till Tom's back so he can be the one to actually get the, the ladder out and, and like get up in the, in the attic farther okay. than just where I can just put my arm through. And um, my mom actually came to the house on the Thursday and she told me and before Tom was home and she told me hey Mackenzie at dusk I'm seeing a lot of bats outside my bedroom just at dusk so like we need to check this and I'm thinking to myself like it's starting to come together I'm like oh no (laughs) and then the next night Tom is home and I my mom's inside watching the baby um, after we put him down and we're just watching them pour out of the the little gap by the window Um, on the top floor, just pouring out one after another. So Mackenzie and Tom's house was infested with bats. And you might be thinking, why didn't the previous owners have to tell them about this? Well, they weren't legally obligated to. Mackenzie and Tom bought this house from an estate sale. When, for example, a homeowner dies, a trustee of the property can sell their assets like the house. And that trustee, whether it's a family member, friend or attorney, they might not have ever even seen the house before. So in an estate sale in Washington state, the seller doesn't need to submit a disclosure form known as Form 17. It's not something that Mackenzie and Tom were too worried about at the time. And again, they did a home inspection, which didn't turn up anything too extreme, like, you know, hundreds of bats in the attic. But this infestation put Mackenzie, Tom and their baby at risk for histoplasmosis, a fungal infection from bat guano and rabies. So... It costs about $1,000 to visit any ER for any reason, and we've had to visit the ER 12 times because you can't just get a post-exposure rabies shot at a normal doctor's office. You have to go to the ER every single time, and I have to go to a pediatric ER every single time, so I've been to Mary Bridge four times, but we'll be maxed out at about $14,000. 
Tom and Mackenzie say this experience has convinced them real estate law has got to change. They say they plan to advocate for more home buyer protections and estate sales in the state. And they want to ensure that when there's a human health risk, sellers must inform buyers of known risks, even in an estate sale. For now, the state health department has tagged the home an imminent hazard. And all of the options for remediating this scenario are expensive. Mackenzie and Tom say the price tag could range from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's actually the best case scenario is that we have a lot of work ahead of us, too, because if we can't get the financing for this, it will end in a strategic default. At some point, we might not be able to afford all this. Through this whole process, the couple has also learned a lot about bats. Tom liberally uses terms like hibernaculum, a place where bats like to roost. And he can tell you about the preferred temperature and humidity bats like to raise their young in. In fact, the Oak Harbor house is filled with mother bats raising their newborns. And that raises an extra challenge. Then you have to deal with the problem of having hundreds of tiny dead baby bats. And so that's more work for you to have to clean up. It's a little bit unethical. You know, that, that's part of what our whole arc of this story is kind of gearing towards, which is we chose to come out here to be closer to nature. And boy, did we get close. That doesn't mean we want to come rampage and come tearing it all down. So how can we do things the right way? How can we, uh, you know, remediate this situation as best we can and also be accommodating to the wildlife that's here? Mackenzie and Tom are waiting until the bats have migrated for the winter before they look at covering holes in the attic or putting on a new roof altogether. They've also been working with the Department of Fish and Wildlife to figure out what types of bats they have in their house and Deception State Park to find a new home for the bats. The current plan is to build bat houses across their property and in the park so the little creatures will have some place to go next breeding season. A bat house is like an artificial attic lifted on stilts. Tom and Mackenzie hope the bats will move there instead of their roof. And as for the huge price tag to mitigate the bats and all the corrosive guano they're leaving behind, homeowners insurance won't help. But Mackenzie and Tom have come up with a Hail Mary plan for how to finance everything. They're taking advanced reservations, in fact. This was kind of a joke. Like, Mackenzie and I were on a walk one day, and we are just like, you know, maybe a bed and breakfast would be cool, and we could get some, you know, it'd be a way to kind of, like, pay for part of the mortgage. And I'm like, yeah, we can call it the bat and breakfast. (laughs) And it was just a joke, but but um, it's very applicable because we're talking about having a place for the bats to stay, and then we're talking about a place for people who like bats to stay. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we put together a fundraiser and, um, you know, the, the intent is we'll use that to, you know, as much as we can to refurbish, um, refurbish the attic and it'll fund us building the bat houses. Let's just give it a shot because even if we fail and end up with foreclosure and bankruptcy, at least we tried something. Yeah. And I think it's possible. The house is salvageable. It's just how much, how much funding is it going to take to get there? So your appeal right now is going out to people who are animal lovers, who are bat enthusiasts particularly, and also for people who just have a little bit of um, empathy in their heart for a young couple who has just been buried in, I don't know how else to say, but bat guano. That's right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, uh, right. I mean, the only thing, <laughs> the only thing scarier than a house full of bats is high interest rates. <laughs> so it's already got the Gothic chandelier, you know, it's fun to think about, you know, we could have the Batman themed room and the, you know, the vampire, you know, what they do in the shadows themed room. Um, so there's lots of fun we could have with it. Final question, you guys, after all of this, how do you really feel about bats now? They're so cute. And like, as a new mom, I like really get it now. I'm like, okay, this is why these bats come to this particular spot. It's warm. It's cozy. You know, this is where, you know, they want to have their baby. And I'm like, I'm like, I feel like I'm sort of more connected to them because of my experience with motherhood, because I, I too would do anything right to, have a special place to raise my baby that's safe. And so I I want to make sure, especially that they're going to continue to have those environments that will be safe for them and that will continue to provide a good place for them to raise their babies and to keep the population up. That is the most understanding response that I could ever imagine in this situation. Like that's their baby. I get it. Like that's that's their little one. Of course. Like there's nothing more I love than snuggling my baby at night and like little co-sleeping, and they get to do that all day. So it's yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Little. It's funny, little Robbie. We put him in his sleep sack, which is like he doesn't have any arms. It's just like kind of like a flap, flappy. Yeah. He almost looks like a little bat. And then when <laughs> when you hold him up against you. I mean, he's really unhappy. He just wants to be held up against you. And it, it's very bat-like. And if I could say anything, um, you know, this could all just be he, he actually is Batman. And this is just his, his origin story. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman, and I'm here with Soundside producer Hans Anderson, and we're playing some of his favorite episodes from the past year. Hey, Hans. Hey, Libby. So what's next? So the next story we taped in July, and we took a trip to the Go Center, which was closing after almost 30 years in Seattle's U District. You know, I knew nothing about Go when I started this story, and while I did kind of learn how to play from some very good Go players, I also learned that I'm really bad at Go and can't even beat the computer on easy mode. Yeah, people were really patient with us, but I felt my brain sort of retreating (laughs) while they were trying to explain it. Oh my gosh, but it was a great community to get to know and a really fun story. So let's take a listen. We're headed to Seattle's U District now, where there's a nondescript two-story building tucked near the corner of I-5 and 45th Street. On the side of that building is a large sign that looks like graph paper with black and white circles on it. If you're a smarty pants, you may recognize this as a game of Go. And if you're a super smarty pants, you might head inside to play the game at the Seattle Go Center. The group has been in this building since 1995. The place has become a haven and gathering place for players dedicated to Go, a game of strategy and territorial expansion with more than 2,000 years of history rooted in Asia. 
And if you want to learn how to play Go, there are plenty of passionate fans at the Seattle Go Center ready to teach. This is a flash moment impromptu how to play Go, um, meeting in the vestibule of the Go Center. That's Bill Childs, president of the Seattle Go Center. We're standing in the entrance to the Go Center's building where there's a large representation of a Go board made of Velcro strips on the wall. It's a seven by seven grid with black and white picnic plates stuck to it. The goal of the game is to contain territory on the board by placing your stones or pieces strategically. All stones have the same value, so there are nearly infinite ways to play. Are you aggressive and a risk taker? or a timid, contemplative player. We like to wax on about how Go is a microcosm of life and business and stuff like that. In a way, the goal of the game of Go is a window into the club's own situation. They've been trying to hold on to their territory, but the steady forces of a changing economy and neighborhood are not an opponent that they can beat. The Go Center is being evicted, and we're visiting on the last day it's open to the public. I place some plates, receive a compliment on my first go move ever, and we head up the stairs to a large room filled with tables covered in maroon cloth, go boards, and small boxes of black and white stones. Evan Rysdam sits at one table playing a game with the center's operations manager, River Leonard. Um, okay, I'm gonna ignore you. Yeah. Evan has been playing Go for more than a decade, starting first with his dad at home in New Hampshire. He started coming to the Seattle Go Center on Saturday afternoons about six months ago. When Evan heard about the closure of the center... Oh, I, I was just sad. I mean, I use this as a, as a big source of socialization. On the day I visit, there's a party planned to say goodbye to the site. Kyle Burke is the Go Center's program manager and brought cookies for the occasion. The Go Center is our membership for sure, but this is like... Um, a core piece of it that we're kind of losing. So it's rather sad to see it go. We'll be doing our best to land on our feet and figure out what's next for the Go Center, but it's, I guess, a milestone, you could say. Not necessarily in the happiest way, but we're going into a great unknown for sure. The center's president, Bill Childs, says the center's history started with a professional Go player, Kaoru Iwamoto. Iwamoto was playing Go in the suburbs of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, when the U.S. attacked the city with an atomic bomb. After that, he made it his mission to use the game to spread peace and cultural awareness. And so he built four Go centers around the world, one in Seattle, one in New York City, one in Amsterdam, and one in Brazil. And we're the last remaining one. The others fell by the way due to just mismanagement or whatever. And Seattle has a pretty rich history with Go because of the Asian influence here, but some of our people are octogenarian and have been playing in coffee shops and Go Club associated with the professional organization in Japan, like back in the 60s. So it, it's great to sort of be this international institution that's well known. And it's great too, because pros will just randomly come here and then like play simul games or do some teaching what does it mean to the community to have a Go Center like this in Seattle and, and one that's been going on for decades? So it's really powerful, but I'm biased, of course. So for a long, long, long time, and in most of America, there's no Go Club, there's no nothing. If you're lucky, you're in a town with a big enough university to attract international students, and then there's a Go Club. We'll have two or three professionals visit a year we get really strong players. And so this is a strong attractor for that. And, and then the critical mass just 
brings us so much more that we have a really vibrant community. And so pre-COVID, we were getting 40-some people here on a Tuesday night, our really big night, and you know maybe 15 to 20 on a Saturday afternoon. But for a couple decades now, we've been like the largest weekly go club meeting in America. Um, and that's only because we have this go center here. Bill says that the go center had planned for its own longevity back in 2016. That's when the center's leadership started looking at how to stay financially viable. The U district was also being upzoned. Light rail went in and property taxes went up. The unicorns and rainbow story was the one we got. We found a partner who could fund, who was a builder, who could buy the property, would do everything and then deliver to us 4,000 square feet for 99 years for free. You know, it was a godsend moment. Renting, as you may know, like in this area, that kind of space is 100K, 150K a year. And, you know, whatever, COVID, Ukraine, economic, you know, juju, whatever, everything went south. Um, if, if you Google tons and tons of developers are, foreclo- are defaulting on properties, billions and billions of dollars. Our business partner has always been a good guy. He's always dealt with us very fair in negotiations. Their hands are, are tied economically. They're bleeding money. So yeah, and then in June, they, they let us know they're, they're not going to break ground. There will be no new building. They can't afford it. And I guess the new equity partner or their lender wanted us out immediately to monetize the property. You know, we sit on 22 parking spaces in primo location for leasing. So So that alone, their equity partner is saying we need to make money off of that. Yeah. So I don't believe that the guy I've been working with for six, four or five years, whatever, is behind that. I believe he's being pushed. But yeah, you know, the day that he delivered the message, we had about a week to process. And then we talked and he's like, and we need you to leave in 30 days. So you have been given this 30-day eviction notice. What's next for the GO Center? Well, immediately, we're moving everything into public storage. Of course, climate-controlled, because we have very nice wood GO bonds, and some that are worth thousands of dollars. And as fast as I can, I'll find a new place to rent for four years. In 2027, there's a settlement from the sale agreement. We will receive money sufficient to buy a permanent place. So that part of the deal is still happening. It's happening a couple of years later. Um, it won't be here in this kind of perfect space with great views of the city and Rainier, but, yeah. but our membership has told us, you know, somewhere in North Seattle, um, it doesn't have to be right here. We can find a good place. And we, we've got good feedback from our membership about, you know, where to locate. We're interestingly bifurcated. They're, very strong voices, there must be easy parking. There are very strong voices, you must be on a light rail or mass transit. So I need to find a place that fits that constraint. And you're looking for? The the short consumer requirements list is, we would like about 3,000 square feet um, to rent now, maybe 2,000 to 2,500, just to tighten the belt. Um, We would like a kitchenette. Um, We need a lockable office. We need bathrooms. That's about it. Bill is confident that even without a home base, he and his team can keep this community together and give them space to do what they love, play Go. I am fully bought in on this mission. 
I, I see what it's brought to Seattle over the past 30 years. I, I love Go deeply. It's my main hobby. I, I just think it's super important. It's, it's almost like we're part of Seattle history now. It used to be every year at our annual party, the embassy, the Japanese embassy would send some consulate person here. And we used to have a close relationship with them and then go to their holiday party. Um, so I think it's really important. It's important because what I said earlier about most places have nothing like this. And we have many players of go here, you know, both from high tech people and the cultural diversity. And having an institution and a place that's home with all this equipment is just, fundamentally necessary, I think, to have a thriving Go community. On the Go Center's last day, people file in to play the game. They clack stones loudly against the wooden boards. Others occasionally pass by and take a look at how these games are developing. Much like the Go Center itself, the players are talking strategy. What's possible? What's far-fetched? What's ideal? With the goal of defending their territory. You can track the Center's progress toward that goal on their website, seattlego.org. And this story does have a happy ending since we first aired it in July. The Go Center has found a new home at the Finney Ridge Community Center. You're listening to Soundside. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman, and I'm here with Soundside producer Hans Anderson. We're going through some of our favorite episodes of Soundside from the year. So Hans, what's next? So that last piece we listened to about the Ghost Center, it was really produced, right? We went to the Ghost Center with a microphone, spent some time getting to know the space, and then spent more time crafting the story we wanted to share. But often on our show, we're talking to someone in a studio or over Zoom. Sometimes that person is just so charismatic, they're like so compelling that the conversation feels as immersive as going somewhere. And I think that's what this next interview feels like to me. And it's impressive because the conversation was about something that is a little hard to drum up interest for, parasites. Yeah, but sometimes all it takes is talking to somebody with passion, knowledge, and excitement for their subject, even something like parasites. And that's the case with Dr. Chelsea Wood. She's an associate professor in the School of Aquatic and Fisheries Science at the University of Washington, and I spoke to her last January. When she was the lead author in a study that found a steep decline in aquatic parasites in Puget Sound, which might sound good on first blush, but really it has biologists raising alarms. She told me about how parasites today are viewed sort of like predators were in the 20th century. You know, a couple decades ago, we thought that predators were just vermin, things to be rid of, things that threatened our livestock and maybe even us. But then science that started coming out in the 60s and 70s showed us how important they are. And the, the best example that we have is the role of wolves in Yellowstone. When they were eradicated in the 1920s, the whole ecosystem fell out of balance. And when they were returned, when they were reintroduced to the park in the 1990s, it was like a wave of green washed over that park and balance was restored. We think that parasites serve a lot of the same functions. Parasite ecology is really in its infancy. We're just starting to learn. We are now where predator ecologists were in the 1960s. But the early indications are that parasites serve a lot of the same functions as predators do, including keeping a cap on the abundance of species that otherwise would grow out of control. Hmm. Do you have a favorite aquatic parasite that lives in the Puget Sound? And could you introduce us to it? 
Yeah, I know I'm not supposed to have favorites, but secretly I do. You can tell us, Chelsea. (laughs) (laughs) My very favorite in Puget Sound is Nibelinia Sermonicola, which very sadly doesn't have a cute common name, but it is very cute itself. It is a tapeworm, and it's a really special tapeworm from the order Trepenorinca. The thing that makes it special, at least in my eyes, is that it has this head with no mouth, no eyes, no gut tract, but the head is armed with four tentacles that usually stay ensheathed inside the head, but can be ejected at will by the tapeworm. So you can imagine this um, formless head with four tentacles that can pop out independently of one another. The tentacles themselves are long and coiled, and each one is armed with thousands of recurved spines. So when you see these guys under the microscope, those little spines reflect the light, and they refract it a little bit, so they look a little rainbowy. And the coolest thing about them is that those tentacles aren't just for looking pretty, although they do. They're also for serving the purposes of the parasite's life. They live in the intestine of sharks, and intestines are slippery. They need a way to hold on. Those tentacles, which can be ejected out of the head end of the tapeworm, are laid down on the intestinal lining of the shark. The worm pulls its little hooks into that intestinal lining, and then it pulls the tentacle back inside, anchoring itself securely to the intestinal wall of the shark. Beautiful and clever. What more could you want? I am sold on the way you describe that tapeworm, but I'm just wondering, what is that visceral feeling in me where I cringe and kind of squirm while you're talking about it. I mean, why why do I have such a closed mind about this, Chelsea? <laughs> the funny thing about parasites is that most people don't encounter them until they're a problem. Right? Like we don't learn about them in school. They're not included in K through 12 education. I almost got through my entire undergraduate degree in biology without learning a thing about parasites. And so the only time we ever learn anything about them is like when our dog poops out a worm. And that's not a pleasant situation to be in. Of course, people have a knee-jerk negative reaction to parasites when all they know about them is that they can live inside their dog or inside of themselves. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that only 4% of parasite species have anything to do with people. And the remainder are all out living in nature, doing a whole diversity of things, some of which are really, really important in ecosystems. And so when you get to know the parasites a little bit better, you get to know them outside of this one narrow role that they play in our lives. And you see how lovely they can look under the microscope and how important they are in ecosystems. It's much easier to love them. Hmm. So you looked at the parasite population in the Puget Sound over the last 140 years. And before I get to the substance of those findings, how in the heck did you know what parasites were doing in 1880? <laughs> It was tricky. There aren't very many data sets that show us how parasite populations change over time. And I think it's safe to say that most people have kind of this intuition that parasitism is on the rise. And we look around us and all we see is COVID, RSV, flu. It seems like infection is everywhere we look. It seems like we have more of it than we used to. My team was interested in systematically testing the hypothesis that parasites have been on the rise over the past several decades. We didn't know how to do that at first because no one keeps track of data on parasites, particularly parasites of wildlife. There aren't old data sets floating around. So we had to innovate a new way to get those data. And what we did was parasitological dissections of 
the specimens that natural history collections hold. And when you go to a museum, what you see in the public space is just a fraction of what the museum holds. And in every basement underneath every museum in the world, there are shelves and shelves and shelves full of jars of fluid preserved hosts. For us, we focused on fish. And all you have to do is open up that fish and all its parasites are preserved right there the way that they would be in life. And we can go to a fish that was collected say in 1880, open it up and know exactly which parasites infected it. Wow, so you are actually hand searching through each of these preserved fish, like cutting into them, looking for what? Like what are the signals that say uh, there's a potential parasite in here? We have a systematic way of looking at each organ and we know which parasites to expect in each organ. Each one is processed in a different way, Um, but it's just by eye. You know, we've developed over the course of thousands of parasitological dissections the ability to recognize a parasite when it's, say, laying in the intestinal contents of a fish. Once you get the search image for it, they're very easy to see. Incredible. Okay, so back to the top lines of the study. What did you find in your research? Well, what we expected to find was that there would be winners and losers among parasites as time progressed. That's often what we see, especially when we study global change. Most groups of species, you're going to have some that profit from the change that humans wreak on the environment over time, and you're going to have many others who are losing over that same time period. But instead, what we found among the parasites was that there was a tremendous amount of decline, way more than we expected. And those declines were concentrated among those parasites with the most complex life cycles. Some parasites can use just one host species. They have simple life cycles. But many other parasite species require one, two, three, four, even five host species to complete their life cycles. And it's those complex life cycle parasites that we found were in decline. The decline was actually so severe, it was 11% per decade, that if it were happening in a group of animals that people actually cared about, like mammals or birds or even insects, there would be a lot of conservation attention. Mm. And what do you believe may be contributing to this decline in parasitic populations? Our data set suggests that climate is the most likely culprit. What we find is that those declines among the complex life cycle parasites are happening in lockstep with increases in temperature. As it gets hotter, we see fewer of those complex life cycle parasites. Now the study, it's just correlational and correlation is not causation. We can't say for sure that it's climate that's causing it, but that's what we view as the most likely suspect at the moment. And why do you believe it's temperature and not pollution, other factors? We actually tested a number of other factors, including 12 different pollutants, uh, where we had data going all the way back to 1880. And we also tested whether the abundance of the parasites hosts might control the abundance of the parasites. So we had uh, fisheries data going back to the 1940s for some of the fish species that we pulled these parasites out of. But neither one of those factors could explain the change over time. It was climate that was closely tied to the decline of the parasites. I mean, 10% per decade since 1880, that's just a huge drop in the parasite populations. As you said, if it was any other type of living organism, this would be like incredibly obvious and alarming. Is there such a thing as an endangered label for 
parasites? And, and if not, why not? There sure is an endangered label. Actually, there's a brand new working group at the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, that's going to specialize in red listing parasite species, basically in putting parasite species on the global endangered species list. Now that's just brand new, but there are some parasites that have made it onto that list already. Uh, my favorite is the pygmy hog sucking louse, which is a Tell louse. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to process that name. Yes. <laughs> As the name suggests, this louse uh, feeds on pygmy hogs, which are an endangered species of hog that lives in Southeast Asia. Because that host is endangered, its parasite is endangered as well. And we suspect that there are probably many other parasite species that are already extinct or are on extinction's door that aren't yet on that list. Mm. Do we know how many parasites have gone extinct since the time period that your study started in 1880? Definitely not. No. We're very early days of understanding how parasite populations have changed over time. In our data set, there are 10 parasite species that we never saw in the latest 40 years of the data set. So we, we can't say that they're extinct. We don't know that they're extinct. We don't even know that they're truly absent from the region, but the fact that they diminish to the point where we can't detect them anymore is extremely worrying. Now, we have only described a tiny fraction of total parasite biodiversity. Most parasites don't even have names yet. So we definitely do not know how many have gone extinct, but we do have a couple of really compelling examples. My favorite is the condor louse, which as the name suggests, is a louse or was a louse of the California condor. And that particular parasite went extinct when the last remaining 22 California condors were brought into captivity in a, a last ditch effort to save their species from extinction. Oh, wow. What happened was that when those condors were brought into captivity, they were powdered with an antiparasitic chemical. They were deloused. All... They were deloused, yeah. Oh. And in that one measure, people who were working so hard to prevent an extinction actually caused one because that's the moment when the California condor louse went extinct completely. That's heartbreaking. It's totally heartbreaking. And it's a great lesson for us as we pursue conservation initiatives there's this whole universe of symbionts living alongside endangered hosts, and it's our responsibility to watch out for them just as we're watching out for their hosts. So if the decline in parasites continues, what are the implications for Puget Sound's ecosystem? Well, you know, we're not entirely sure. Our understanding of the role that parasites play in ecosystems is really in its infancy. We just have some, some guesses about what might happen. One is that as we lose parasites, we will probably lose some of the controls that we currently have on the abundance of hosts. So there might be some host populations that in the absence of their parasites are able to grow out of control. And then the other really interesting thing about parasites is that they can push energy up through the food web. Often they're transmitted from prey to predator. And when they are, they can just like hang out in that prey and, and wait to be eaten by a predator and thereby transmitted, or they can encourage that process along. And when they encourage that process along, they make the prey host weak, slow, flutzy, and therefore easier for the predator host to catch. In that way, the parasite is pushing energy up the food web 
into the jaws of top predators. And so in a world where we eradicate the parasites, there's going to be a lot less food for top predators. And in Puget Sound, it's worth thinking about some of the top predators that we've got hanging around, like southern resident killer whales. It is possible that parasites have been subsidizing them, providing them with extra food all this time and not getting any credit for it. Like slowing down their prey and with the decline of the parasites might have meant that there's less prey and less energy getting to the killer whales. Precisely. Parasites are far from the charismatic megafauna that we fall in love with in the Puget Sound, like the orca. They are very important to ecosystems, as you have mentioned. How do you get people to care more about parasites? You can't care about what you don't know. And we do such a poor job of including parasitism in biology education in this country. Like I said before, I only learned about parasites well into my undergraduate degree in biology. I easily could have gotten a bachelor's degree in biology without knowing anything about these animals. And that's despite the fact that by conservative estimates, parasites are 40% of animal species. I almost had a bachelor's degree in animal science without knowing about 40% of animal species. Now that's gotta change if anyone's gonna care about parasites. And so what I see as a really important next step is finding ways to include parasitism in biology curricula for everyone. But more important than that, you know, I think people often learn best when they're being entertained. And that's part of why nature documentaries and the Discovery Channel have been so vital for the PR transformation that predators have undergone in the past couple of decades, from vermin that we want to eradicate to magnificent, charismatic megafauna, as you put it, that we all put on a pedestal. And now, you know, we've got this information suggesting that parasites are just as important. I think we've got a shark week. Why not a parasite week? Hmm. So parasites need like a PR breakthrough the way that Blackfish or Free Willy helped their much larger and more well-known cousins. I love that example. Yes, precisely. Are there any other steps that you think people can take to save parasites? So I, I actually was a participant in a, a project to outline a 12-step plan for parasite conservation a couple of years ago. And anyone who's interested in seeing like the nitty-gritty details of how we tackle parasite conservation is welcome to check out that project on my website. But I think in addition to education and to getting people familiar with parasites so that they don't have these knee-jerk negative reactions, one thing that we really need to figure out is how to piggyback parasite conservation onto the conservation of hosts. The key thing that this study demonstrates is that where the hosts go, the parasites will follow. As climate change disrupts ecosystems, we will see declines in hosts and consequent declines in parasites. And so that's bad in that respect, but it also means that if we invest in the conservation of hosts, we're also investing in the conservation of parasites. Um, and as long as we're not doing things like powdering the feathers of California condors with chemicals to kill all of their parasites, then the stuff that we do to protect hosts is going to have um, a secondary benefit of contributing to parasite conservation as well. Chelsea Wood is an associate professor in the School of Aquatic and Fisheries Science at the University of Washington. Thank you very much for stopping by. Thanks so much for having me.
Thanks for listening to SoundSide. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m., Monday through Thursday, or anytime online at KUOW.org.